Attorney, policy expert, author, and documentarian, explorer, soldier, husband, father, patriot, faithful servant. More than a handful of words that describe my guest today. He's Major General Tom Mulliken. That's a lot for a man who, when he was born, doctors said he might not walk or run, ever. Let's pick up the six with Tom Mulliken. Sir, good to see you again. How are you? Oh, man, it's great to see you. I'm doing wonderful. Uh, so blessed to get to see you uh, a few weeks ago down in Aiken, South Carolina, came down and spent some time with our mutual friend and man, just a warrior and a patriot in uh, Lowell Coppert. And uh, we attended uh, a fundraising event for a fallen Marine from that local community. Matthew Dillon is his name and got to meet his family as well. And you keynoted uh, that night and just what an incredible evening and, and uh, thrilled to have you come and, and meet our audience. And for those who haven't met you before, get a chance to uh, to hear from you and chat a little bit today. It's a real honor to be there and great to see you. And Lowell is a, a patriot of the highest order. So just proud to list him as a friend. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. He's one of those guys and we'll sing some praises his way. He's been on the show a few times now at this point, talking about just the incredible effort that they've put into trying to move that Vietnam Veterans Memorial there in Aiken. And, and what a incredible hotbed for veterans that that community is. I mean, it's amazing, right? The, the number of veterans, 19, 20,000 veterans in that community, which is amazing. He's one of those guys, though, that you meet him and you get the feeling that you've known him forever. And uh, and he's welcomed me with open arms. It's been incredible. It's really incredible to, to, to kind of run across somebody like that it doesn't happen on accident. Yeah. He's a special guy and we live in a, a great state, 405,000 veterans in South Carolina in a state that really recognizes the importance and value of uh, people who give their time and talent and sometimes their life in the defense of our freedoms. If memory serves correct, you were born a state to the North though. Is that right? I was born in North Carolina uh, out on the, Eastern part, my family's Beaufort County, and grew up up and down the East Coast. My father, War II veteran, uh, Roberts Raiders, came back and helped build uh, DuPont's textile fibers division. So we moved periodically and had an opportunity to meet people up and down the East Coast. I know that service was instilled in you at an early age with your father's service, but the path to the military for you, and our listeners heard me say Major General Tom Mulliken, it wasn't necessarily an easy one. And we're going to talk about some ways that you got creative to get there. But right out the gate, I mean, from birth, you're hit with some adversity. I was born with what they call extreme bilateral club feet. My feet were turned around backwards and laid up against my calves. So uh, before I was one day old, I had casts up to my hips and multiple surgeries. And my earliest memories I like to say, because it's true, that my father would have made the great Santini look like a cupcake. <laughs> uh, there were just, it was no no excuses in our family. I well remember, I was very young, I would say six or seven, him standing me up in the corner and making me walk with cast up to my hips saying his boy wasn't going to be in a wheelchair. And I wasn't. And I think that, you know, for myself, while it may sound cliche, my, my disability was a blessing. I found that in, a, in many aspects of my career, people quit. You got a lot more gas in the tank than what most people know. And when you're born with a disability, you, you tend to find out that you can go a little further than what some folks might give you credit for. So uh, I consider it a blessing in a very real way. Getting in the military was a little problematic, mm -hmm. but we were able to get it done and we got in and enjoyed serving our great country and 
the state of South Carolina. He just talked about summiting mountains. He summited some of the highest peaks on continents across the globe. We'll talk a little bit about that. Do you remember moments as a kid? Uh, and I know your parents were were tough, but also loving throughout that process. There had to be moments though where you just were frustrated with battling through that. Yeah, I think that you know that today they would call it bullying. Um, there's still today a disparity. Uh, not quite a half inch between the balls of my feet and the, my heels. So what that is amounts to is that if I'm walking in regular shoes, I'm walking on the balls of my feet or something that would be easy to be picked on as a kid. Um, and I, I remember that well. You know, I, they recently inducted me into the Black Belt Hall of Fame, and I, they did it, I think, mainly because I was entertaining because I was a bleeder. But I grew up <laughs> fighting a lot. Uh, yeah. And, and the truth is, as I mentioned when we were in Aiken together, if you were talking about my feet as a kid and re really until recently, and I'm 61 now, I didn't talk about it because if you were talking about it, we were fighting about it. Mm. And yeah, you get picked on. It just, it's what the Lord gave me to make me tough. I mean, I, I'm not tough anymore, but I was pretty tough as a kid. And, you know, you, you fight a lot, you get good at fighting and you made fun of my feet. You know, you, we were going to go a round or two. Yeah, sure. I bet. I didn't win everyone, but I can tell you this. Nobody ever said, whoo, I'd like to do that again. Right. You're going you're gonna to get in there and make them at least remember the experience. So right? like, yes, at least I, remember. I remember I remember well. I, I, yeah. I didn't like to talk about it, but mom and dad, they did not put up with whining. Mm. You know, I grew up probably like you and a lot of kids of our, of our age. So you, you crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about. And they did. So you didn't feel sorry for yourself. You didn't cry. You just got out there. And my mom used to say, don't worry about what you don't got. Just worry about what you do got. That was That's it. Right. You did right. the best you could. That's right. So you mentioned that black belt. You've got a black belt in traditional karate, certified army master fitness instructor. You did have to get creative to get your way into the army. And I heard that story a couple weeks ago. So share it with us, please. Well, yeah, I, I was in 1980. I was on my way to PLC. We were on our way to Quantico and I'd been through MEPS and was on my way out. I'd, I'd stood in the back and avoided, of course, I'm not recommending this, but I answered no on all the questions. It was a different time. It was a different time. Different time. Uh, and was on my way. And the second time, literally in route, I was pulled out of line and, and asked about my feet. And uh, I mean, I've got pretty noticeable scars on my Achilles tendons that have been cut on many times. So they just medically disqualified me. You know, they didn't want to hear that, that I had been a good high school athlete and all the rest of that college athlete and that sort of thing. So they, they medically disqualified me and it took me a little more than a decade after that to, to get in. And by the time I got in, I, I was direct commissioned into the army JAG reserves and actually went to master fitness trainer camp before I went to OCS uh, and enjoyed that experience. And so I had sort of my different MOSs. I was JAG mm -hmm. officer, but I was also master fitness trainer for the organizations that I was attached to. 
I feel like this will likely be part one of two where we're going to have to have you back and unpack a lot of that because we could spend a lot of time just talking about that. But I do want to talk about that experience as a JAG officer because ultimately it proves to be very critical uh, and it becomes a part of this ongoing story of this post 9-11 world. And here we sit in the 20 year anniversary, not but days away from the 20 year anniversary of that fateful day where terrorists attack our country and thousands are killed. And a huge piece of that is this man, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's a mastermind of 9-11. And then you end up being part of the chief prosecutor of military commissions overseeing the trial. You're part of that team. So take me back, if you don't mind, to that day, Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001. Where were you? Oh, I, I knew exactly where I was. I was uh, just as, and we all know where we were, I guess, in, generation before they knew where they were on, you know, when the yeah, Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor. Yeah, exactly. So I was, I was attached, JAG officer attached to KPOC, uh, civil affairs, psychological operations. So we we're on 24 hour orders. We had our stuff packed and I figured I was, I was leaving. Um, I was at the time I was going on vacation. I was on my way up to Alaska to go hunting and fishing. And when this happened, of course, all that stopped and we all sort of rearranged and, and got ourselves ready. And I, this isn't what you asked, but I have to tell you, ask, you asked about my mother and father. I, the thing I remember most about that day is my mother lived with us for the last 15 years of her life. And she called me. She was she grew up in a very poor area, eastern North Carolina. Um, and back in the day, eastern North, anything east of 95, Mm -hmm. way too proud to take government support. So you just made do. Yeah. And very patriotic. She called me in her room and she said, I figured this is when she was going to give me the don't be a hero speech. And I'm not sure that this is good. I'm just telling you, this is where I came from. She said, sit down for a second, son. So she doesn't ever talk in those terms. I, I did. She said, I just want you to remember one thing when you go. And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, I want you to remember all the innocent women and children that those men killed in those twin towers. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, don't forget that. That was it. She was sending me over there to extract a pound of flesh. Now, you know, as a JAG officer, uh, I didn't want to get into a lot of that stuff, but I, I knew this. There was a resolve in this country to protect our freedoms. They had brought war onto our shores, and it was time that we, we went back over there and addressed the situation in a way that we could all be proud of. You ask about the chief prosecutor, we had until just recently, probably the greatest lawyer of our generation, not JAG officer, lawyer in the name of Mark Martins, who was the chief prosecutor. Uh, he served in various positions. Now this is a patriot, graduated at the top of his class at West Point, got a Rhodes Scholarship, went to Oxford, did so well they offered him a third year, came back as an infantry officer, set the rucksack record at Fort Campbell and still would tell you today, having just retired, that he was just an old infantryman. After doing that and serving in infantry, went to Harvard, graduated at the top of his class at Harvard Law School, and then went into JAG. So this is a guy that could have made millions and millions of dollars who took on that job. I had the honor, and I mean that in a very literal way, of meeting him when I was attached to KPOC. He was the deputy SJA at 18th Airborne Corps. We met each other and had stayed connected. And so when he came back from running the, um, and I'm going to mispronounce it, but just say for the, the law of war in Afghanistan, 
mm-hmm. and was appointed to that, he asked me if I would come on and be a special assistant. I, my job was minuscule. The, the only thing I could say is just that it gave me a chance to work for one of the greatest Americans of our generation. He knew, as I did, that how that went down was going to be like Nuremberg. I'd been in the Nuremberg courthouse when I was in Germany with the army and uh, could have not been in anybody's hands better. Like we could talk about some of the political decisions that were made, mm-hmm. some of the prisoners and whatnot. And I'm, we could talk about that all day, but General Martins is the best this country's ever had. As you're a part of that process, and it's years removed by the time all that gets going, right? Um, I mean, it's years removed from that day of 9-11. How much do you flash back to mom pulling you in, in her room and, and telling you to go to work and, and get things done? We, we grew up. My father uh, was with a group that he was at, he was in college on a, uh, lacrosse scholarship and was pulled he left to volunteer and he became a part of this small reconnaissance unit that was referred to as rogers raiders that went ahead they were all college students that agreed to serve in this small group and they were across german lines for a good bit of the war collecting intel which at that time was bringing live nazis back wow so this was war in a way that we see in the movies that is, it's not surgical in the sense of a forward observer putting a laser and something. This was, this was very personal war. And he came back and he had a, we had a very real sense of, of patriotism around our house. And we knew because he had fought for freedom one Nazi at a time. People that understand the cost of our freedoms in that way, they impart it to their children in ways maybe that some other folks didn't have the privilege. Uh, so when you say harken back to that, we, my career has been one of swinging over my weight for a lot of years, but, and I've traveled around the world to many countries on every continent. I know people far smarter than me, far better than me, who work harder than I do, that live in these countries that have ba- are barely able to survive. So when I say I know, I know that the reason why I enjoy the comforts that I enjoy is because of the country that I happen to have the privilege of growing up in. I mean it. It's not cliche. And so when we talk about protecting the prosperity and the opportunities that we have here, I mean that. And I am a walking example of what this country, my teacher in the third grade wanted to fail me. So when I tell Virginia, says, don't say it. I told you this in Aiken. Don't say it because people believe it. I was a cripple. Who, who struggled in school, who has had immense success in my corporate law practice. And I know it's because of the country that I live in and the opportunities that I've availed myself of by just not giving up. And that's what we're protecting. And this economy that we're talking about now is what allows us to have the best military the world's ever known. So we need to be careful not to gut our economy at the expense of socialism. So forgive me for taking this in a different direction. That's all right. But it's very real. It is very real. And you've seen it from many different angles, not just a military career, but a successful corporate career, right? You've seen it as you've traveled the globe. You've been in more places than 
many other folks have, and and you've seen it from all those different positions. And, I, and what I what I get the sense of is it continues to drive home in you just how blessed and fortunate we are to be have been a, a part of this great nation. And, and I think that's been on display here the last few weeks. And maybe, and we talked about this with Lieutenant Colonel Worth Parker just the other day. Maybe we got a little tired over the last 20 years. Maybe we lost a little perspective and it's been thrown in a lot of people's faces over the last two weeks. Specifically, when you see people of a country who are fleeing with everything they've got in all their being to try to leave Afghanistan because they know what kind of control is coming in and Taliban control. And maybe it's given some Americans uh, uh, a real perspective. Your thoughts on what uh, what the last month has been like, what the last few weeks has been like, uh, and and where you think we can go from here to uh, to continue to uphold the promises that we made to not just Americans but to Afghan allies who've been critically important to us over the last twenty years. We all knew that the war was going to end in Afghanistan, and and just so to be clear, that that's not the issue on the table. That that war was going to end. Mm-hmm. We knew that our presence was going to ultimately, we were going to leave that country in the larger numbers in time. That's not a matter of debate. So let us not get drawn back into that because we all know that's not the issue. The issue is, did we fumble in in not having a sufficiently thoughtful exit strategy? And anybody who is not willing to acknowledge that we, fumbled the ball when we failed to to create a thoughtful exit strategy and follow a thoughtful exit strategy is fooling themselves. And I don't think anybody in either party in the Pentagon or in the White Mm -hmm. House won't acknowledge privately that we missed a huge opportunity to demonstrate leadership to the world as we had a calculated exit strategy. We <laughs> We're going to go to the public, so I want to be careful. It sure. was a it was a huge gap, and so now we're left with ha- trying to sort of recreate history and go in and and protect the lives of those who should have been taken out of the country as part of a thoughtful exit strategy. And what worries me, having a number of friends who are still special operators who will likely be tasked with this mm-hmm. is that because of bungling the exit strategy, we are now putting the lives of very heroic Americans at greater risk. And so if you're looking at it to take a snapshot, we messed up the exit strategy. Now you can use whatever expletives words you want to use, but I think we have to start there. We are now beginning the process of identifying what risks and liabilities did we leave behind and what does that strategy look like in order to try to mitigate or minimize the, the loss of uh, human loss as a result of our mistake. And there will be costs that are associated with that that could have been avoided. That's on the exit strategy. Creating allies, with the Taliban, it's dumbfounding. Not an option. I, Not I, an I, option. I, it's just when I read this, I, I say to myself, "There's got to be more there than what what I'm seeing," because I'm simply getting the narrative that's coming out of the media. Hmm. Uh, peace through strength. 
these sorts of concepts, rudimentary sort of almost cliches where we need to be. Yes, it was time for the United States to develop an exit strategy and execute an exit strategy. You didn't ask me, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Please. There are going to be some people that love what I'm getting ready to tell you. If I'm the president and, and I'm relying on my generals that gave me the advice to pull out the way I did, I'd get rid of them because that's not what leadership looks like. That's not what leadership looks like. And now to try to, to divert the public's attention away from these kind of thoughtful, carefully executed strategies, that's where we are right now. It's the reality of where we are. We're gonna do the best we can, but the, but the flag and general officers that gave the President of the United States that advice need to be gone. That's it. You, you uh, at one point you talked about those special operators, uh, and I know that there are many that you've grown close with. In fact, uh, and I'm going to brag on you a little bit, and I know you'll get mad at me for doing it, but that's okay. We're across the digital divide, and you can't reach out and hit me right now, so I'll take my chances. But you, as you sit today, you sir, are an honorary Green Beret, and there can't be but a few of those actually walking around, and there haven't been that many that have been inducted into that community. What does that mean to you, and wh- how has that community, those special operators, specifically the Army's Green Beret, how have they embraced you? They continue to give the ultimate sacrifice. You, you know, not uh, – thank you. It was, it was an honor for me, and I'm – deeply honored. I served with a number of former Green Berets in civil affairs. In fact, my commander at the time was a former Green Beret um, who moved over into CA. Uh, In my mind, the greatest warriors in the history of the world. We have the benefit of of having the greatest military that's backed by the greatest economy in the history of the world. It's a very personal thing for me. We are sending, I am confident, friends of mine into harm's way to clean up a mess that shouldn't be. Uh, we are where we are. None of the people that, I, that are friends of mine would ever object to doing it. The fact is, some of them probably looking forward to doing it. They're gonna bring the good news of America back to Afghanistan. And anybody who thinks that this country's gotten soft because of decisions or miscalculations, I would encourage them to take another look. This this country, the DNA of this country is still the same. Well, Tom, made- we, we've seen it. We've seen it play out over the last few weeks here where groups like Team America, Task Force Pineapple, Task Force Dunkirk, these veterans, not far removed, some of them from actually, you know, being active duty. I mean, we talked to Worth the other day. He retired in June. He's not he's not back on active duty in the fray, but he's back in the fray, right? Helping pull people out. They they, they are ready, and that's what gives me optimism in all this, right? And so, look, we talked about some heavy subjects. We've talked about heavy subjects here over the last few weeks, and it could seem like it's all doom and gloom. The optimism for me remains in seeing those servants stand up, be ready, and run back into the fray in a moment like this. I think that's what we're seeing play out here. I do too. I, th- th- this country is is strong. Uh, as it's ever been, uh, our military strong. We we've got to recalculate. Uh, you know, it's getting ready to start SEC football season. You know, we and it's a lot more serious than an interception or even mm-hmm. didn't do well in the first half because it was a major mishandling. 
And what I would like to hear coming out of Washington is it was a major mishandling. And we are doing the best we can to try to rectify some of the, some of the gaps. And that would be a message that would resonate, but to try to spin it as in, this is what was calculated just simply makes us look confused and weak. This country is people would appreciate it. And, I, I think they would. would land with them too. That's for sure. Let's have some fun with the time we have left. We've talked about some heavy stuff. No, it's all good. It's all good. And this audience of ours will be leaning in and, and appreciative uh, of your candor uh, because I think it's valuable. All right. We're, let's talk about summiting incredible mountain peaks. So you got to remember, right? This is the guy who was born with those incredibly club feet uh, battles through adversity but if memory serves correct, has summited four of the highest peaks on four continents, highest peaks on four of, of, of our world's continents. So tell me just a little bit about that side of Tom Mulligan. I, You know, growing up, I liked to hunt and I, I used to laugh at guys climbing mountains because the only time I ever climbed up the side of a mountain was to try to get a mountain goat or, you know, a bear that happened to be running across a mountain up in Alaska. And I was like, why in the world would anybody just climb a mountain just to climb it? And I'm my practice is corporate energy and environmental. And I am in debates from time to time. And I, people talk about the glaciers receding. So I decided I was going to go climb Kilimanjaro. Hmm. And uh, that was the first mountain of consequence. And I say consequence of say higher than 18,000. And yeah, uh, some bad stuff could happen if you're not dialed in on what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> that's right. I mean, it's just once you get to a certain level, there's there's risk just by being there. Forget other things that could happen. Uh, and I, I'll tell you, when you break the clouds on summit, the mm-hmm. morning of the summit, it gets in your blood. And we did that. Uh, and I had climbed a bunch of mountains just kind of here and there, but like that. So then we went to Russia and climbed Mount Elbrus, which is the highest peak in, in Europe, the Caucasus mountain regions in Southern Russia. It was probably sportier getting there than up the side of that mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that trip in like? That was an amazing trip. We had to get through several military uh, checkpoints there. The Russians at that time were really having problems with the Chechnyans and the Georgians. And so you didn't want to come having problems with everybody all the time. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was quick to talk English. Let me just say that. Yeah. When we, <laughs> I know a little bit of Russian, not, not a lot, just enough not to starve. Mm-hmm. But we had a great time on that mountain and, and, had, and did it with some wonderful Russian, had some great guides and a great time. Um, and then went down to Aconcagua, down in the Andes. It's about 23,000 feet and just, just had a wonderful time. Uh, been on all seven. My son and I, did a winter climb on Everest last January um, and had a wonderful time. Didn't try to summit, want to try to summit. That's not one you try to rush. We've nope. been up an alley a few times, never for one reason or another, never gotten to the summit. The last trip up, we took 200% wounded uh, Green Beret and uh, had a couple little health things along the way. And it's easy. I, I had hate, but up there uh, on one climb and I had to come down. Tell me, what's that mean? Yeah. Talk to me about that. High altitude pulmonary edema. Wow. Uh, So it's one of the things from low oxygen, one of the the mountain illnesses that you can get. It's, you know it when you got it because you're coughing up uh, purple blood and and, uh, 
so anyway, I and I was, you know, a lot of the problems when deal with with oxygen either down deep in the ocean or up high is that you don't make good decisions. And I kept telling my son, we're going to press on, press on. So he he called my wife. He knocked me out, called my wife on the satellite phone and put her on and said, and she's and my wife was a prosecutor for 30 years. So she, her words were, I don't really care. You're dumb enough to die on a mountain, but you're not going to die in front of your sons. So you're coming down. I was like, Thomas, you told me you were not going to call mom if I gave you the phone. In fact, I'll tell you this, just for those guys yeah. out there been married a long time, people have asked me, have you ever been scared on a mountain? Yeah. When my wife got on the phone, I was scared. <laughs> <laughs> just think Jack Russell, man. These Those dogs have no reverse in the gearbox. Right. That's my wife. Oh, uh, the, the mountains are beautiful around the world. Just unbelievable. We, we Everywhere I go, I climb. So I've done a bunch of 14ers out in the West. Uh, and, and around we, the highest place on earth, by the way, just to put in a plug form is, is not Everest. The highest place on earth is a dormant volcano in Ecuador, uh, Chimborazo, which we've climbed a couple of times. It's because of the Ecuadorian bulge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I teach down the Galapagos. I spend about a month out every year down in the Galapagos. And we always go when I'm coming back and go out there, Ruminaui, Chimborazo, Cotopaxi, other mountains that we enjoy hiking and climbing on. So it, it's, it's wonderful. What have you, what, what have you learned? What have you gained from folding into, to different communities like that across the world? Um, That's a great question. And, you know, the answer again may sound cliche, but people are people, you know, they want to, they want an opportunity to raise their families. Uh, They want to be comfortable. You know, I, because of environmental law, I tell people like, look, you want to destroy your environment, destroy your economy, uh, because people will not. Uh, when when the economy is bad, people are worried about eating first. <laughs> so, yeah, I've met some wonderful people on in a lot of different countries. I, the truth is, I'm working on a project now down in the Amazon and in, in an area where I have gone in. I don't like to take a team when I go into some of these places just met incredible people. We did a huge project for the UN down in Fiji a few years ago on seabed mining. And the world is full of wonderful people and wonderful places. I, um, at at this point in my life, probably won't do as many mountains. Uh, but as I look back, I realized just how blessed I've been to see some of these beautiful places. We're going to have you come back and, and dig into more of that because I, I also want to talk about the next time you come is you've summited incredible mountains, but you've also gone in down into some of the depths of the sea uh, to explore what that looks like. And, and you're doing it from a standpoint of what it sounds to me like is you can read articles about the climate and the climate changing and what we're up against from all of those factors. But you're like, I want to get my hands on it. Like, I want to see it to know what's really happening. It's you mentioned a couple of interesting points. The uh, diving under the ice in Antarctica is one of the is an experience that every diver, everybody should have, just with the penguins and mm. leopard seals. Lot the issue with climate is we have a macro atmospheric issue that is manifesting at a micro level in very different ways, and we're seeing that play out. And so the unfortunate part about the public conversation is for decades you had to choose either the the earth was coming to an end or the climate's not changing. And the truth is neither one of them are right. The climate has changed throughout all of time. So really what you're looking at, the scientific issue 
is to what degree has humans' activities been a cause for the amplification and to what degree can humans begin to retard or re recede that? Mm. And that's a that's a, a, a much more complicated, but it's it's easy if we focus there. The problem is you've never the public has not had an opportunity to learn about that middle ground is, you know, how do we do it? And when people look at and I know we're coming to an end, so I, I'll leave you with this unless you want to go further. People point at Kyoto and Copenhagen and Paris and all these accords. Abject failures. Since 1997, when the Kyoto Protocol was framed, since 1997 to today, I want to say this so that people hear it, China's increase is greater than our gross. So that our anthropogenic interference or our greenhouse gas emissions from the U.S. could be zero and global emissions would have risen dramatically because that's China alone. And there's there are other countries, the India, Brazil. So that when we look at this, it's really it's a global issue. Mm. It's an atmospheric issue. And it's one that's manifesting locally that's creating real human suffering. So it's it's an issue worth exploring. We'll come back and let's explore it. All right. Can you do that for us? I know you've got some things this afternoon, a busy man. You guys heard me read through the resume to be able to have this much time with you today. I'm, I'm grateful to be able to do it. Uh, Tom, it's always a, an extreme pleasure when our journeys can cross. I think we're just scratching the surface here. So come back and let's share some more stories. In the I'd love to. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. Love your program. It's my pleasure, sir. He's Major General Tom Mulliken. I'm Brian Jodis, and this has been this version of Pick Up the Six. We'll be back with him again in the near future. We'll talk to you guys later.